Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, I have a gift for you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a free download. You can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach and get a copy. And today we have with us Julie Charlestein. Julie is a Philadelphia-based business leader and healthcare innovator who serves as the fourth generation CEO of Premier Dental, just named a 2023 top 10 most innovative company in wellness by Fast Company. Her new book is a Wall Street Journal bestseller and is titled How to Lead Your Family Business, Excelling Through Unexpected Crisis, Choices and Challenges. Julie, congratulations and welcome. Hi, thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate your having me. So you are fourth generation CEO of a family business founded in 1913 by your great grandfather. Yes, our business is Premier Dental. Like you said, started in 1913. We are inspired solutions for daily dentistry, which means that we develop and manufacture innovative consumables for the oral health professional around the world. So things that dentists and hygienists put in your mouth. Um, So we're 110 years old and four generations in. And you actually start your book with the line, we've probably been in your mouth. Yes. (laughs) Funny and smart. And uh, you hadn't initially planned to follow your grandfather and father into the executive suite at Premier. Tell us about your journey that led you to actually join Premier. Sure. So, um, well, first the opening line that actually was like, I was insistent that that stay. My editor was like, that's not a good line. I was like, just leave it there. (laughs) Um, So a lot of family businesses are, are, all family businesses are different. Some really encourage and sometimes, you know, try to mandate that family members enter. Our family was not like that. Um, I'm very appreciative of that. So my Um, direction was a little bit different in that I never thought that I would enter. So I did my undergraduate degree in very useful uh, subjects of political science and Judaic language and literature. And I worked in those areas for a while um, and then wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I worked part-time at our company and I said, you know, I kind of like this and I think it's interesting. So let me go to business school. So then I went to business school. I got a job outside of our business. So I'd worked outside at a couple of different um, inter uh, points. And um, as I was at this, the latest uh, job, my father started calling me and, you know, was asking me, what are you, what are you thinking? What do you want to do? What's your trajectory? Um, and so then I started researching family business. I started researching our business, our industry. Um, and then I decided to join and I came in as a product manager Um, And then I worked my way up. So after about 16 years or so, I became CEO. 
And it is very interesting. What was it like to grow up in a family that runs a successful large business? What was the experience like? Um, to me, it was it was it was the norm, um, and it wasn't something that it wasn't something that kind of like engulfed and enveloped our everyday life. It was something that we certainly were aware of, something that we were proud of, um, but not something that that kind of eclipsed every other area of of life. When I was reading your book, I saw that you worked at CNN, and then you actually had an experience of getting fired during your time as a legislative assistant. And what I really could connect with you about is how driven you are, how hardworking you are. <laughs> and I could understand how you felt. So you had some challenging experiences prior to joining family business. Do you feel that those experiences really prepared you well? I think the more experiences you can have, um, the better prepared you will be, irrespective of what that final journey is. Um, so I would say definitely um, it helped to shape, you know, my my thinking in terms of what I wanted for myself, what I didn't want, certainly how to um, work better, work stronger. Um, and, and also those outside experiences, especially when coming into a family business, certainly serve to elevate you in the eyes of the employees of the family's business. So it doesn't seem like you're just coming in there because you're a member of the family. Definitely, yes. So it's not as if you just came there out of school and you've never been anywhere else. You right. came with a certain level of experience. And when you were growing up and then going to school, it wasn't even on your mind that you will end up running someday the family business? Or no. Possibility, but not right now. No, it was never a thought that I would do it. No. Why do you think that was the case? I think it's because we were encouraged to pursue what interested us. And on the surface, why would I think that dental development and materials would be interesting to me? <laughs> um, I didn't I didn't have the perspective. I didn't have the maturity to look at it in that way. Um, so I pursued things that you know, were, were of interest to me and kind of fell into where, where my education was. Um, so yeah, that's why I never, I never thought about it. <laughs> so founded in 1913 by your great grandfather and uh, Premier now is older than many of the most well-known and successful companies in America. What are some of the essential things needed for a family-owned enterprise to remain successful over a century? There are, you know, a myriad of things. Um, one, one essential thing, I think, is the willingness to change. Um, you know, I have a favorite line that actually comes from a Gatorade commercial, which is to start a revolution, the only solution evolves. And to stay successful for so many decades so many generations over a century, you need to have the willingness and the fortitude to envision and implement those evolutions. And before we jump into talking about your work as a leader and so on, maybe to set a little more for context, you could speak about your father and grandfather and them as leaders and how they brought Premier and then you took over after that. Sure. Um, so my grandfather was the second generation, um, and he was really just a, a an intuitive leader. 
Um, he garnered respect. Um, he had a very, what I call, humble confidence about him. Um, you know, he was leading in a time before business schools were, you know, important, before all these catchphrases existed. So, you know, building a culture and building entrepreneurialism within an organization, these are now, you know, very hot topics. He just understood those concepts before they were even presented kind of to the whole um, zeitgeist of business. Uh, and I think that that really helped to create an organization that was able to sustain for for so many years. Um, and my father was very, very respectful of his father, very deferential, really wanted to serve him and do that by serving the business. And my father is very, very smart. Um, he went to he went to Wharton um, and he, you know, really sought to carry on the legacy of his father and grandfather. And two of your grandfather's deepest commitments, according to your book, were to branding and quality. And this is when branding wasn't even a big thing yet. Right. And in terms of quality, it was back in the day when government regulation was much less common and less strictly enforced. So it was even more important. How did this influence you? It was a, a, a constant reminder of the strength and value of the brand. Um, and then that, that was kind of above all else. Obviously the people, but the strength and the value of the brand was above all else. And therefore the products had to be, they just had to be the best ones. <laughs> um, and so that was always, you know, when we were talking about looking at new products and development and things like that, you know, is this something that's worthy of the premier brand? makes total sense and the name of the company is also very good yes they they were obviously very very smart my great-grandfather I never had the pleasure of knowing him but that's why my name is Julie his name was Julius um so he was smart <laughs> incredible let's talk about the phrase your grandfather Morton used for sales he said always ask for the order the worst they can say is no how did this impact how you lead and treat sales right now? Well, it, it actually had a profound effect on one of my kind of first major leadership breakthroughs within the organization. Um, and it came around product development. Um, we were looking to develop a product. We, we had done so, but the concept of it did not focus group very well. So we said, okay, we obviously need to do something different. So we had, there was this technology that we had been looking at and then it turned out, we thought the technology was, you know, owned in, in one area, um, but it turned out that it was owned by a major, major consumer company. So when we found that out, everyone said, okay, well, you know, forget it. We'll have to do something else. And I said, why? Let's just call them. <laughs> the worst they can say is no, but they said yes. Um, and it turned out to be one of our most successful products. And then you also mentioned in your book that Premier is kind of a top company in terms of developing and manufacturing of dental products, but smaller by revenue versus some top competitors. And you mentioned when you go to meetings with suppliers and customers and so on, you feel and behave which is great, like the CEO of a major player. And it is so important to do because 
how you carry yourself, how you speak to customers and suppliers and so on, determines how those relationships will evolve. So what advice would you give to leaders who are in a similar situation? Let's say they run a company with superior products and services, but the company is still smaller versus other competitors in terms of revenue. And uh, that feeling of being inferior in some way in terms of revenue generation and so on impacts the result that they have. What advice would you give them? Well, you know, I actually think there are two different things. We are a major player, but we're just not as big as the other major players. So there's actually a distinction to be made there. So you can be a major player, but still be smaller um, because like in our instance, we have world leading brands. Um, so our contribution to the market and the industry is very large, although someone else's is bigger. Um, so for me, it's, it's always just having the understanding of there is a reason why we are here. You know, look, it's because we do these things. We have done these things. We continue to do these things. We continue to drive relevance to the marketplace. Um, and for me, as long as that is something that we, you know, kept doing again, that driving that relevance, we talk about that a lot of the time at Premier, um, coupled with the strength of our brand, it was, it's, it's, it's a non-issue. Um, and then the other part of it, you know, just, if you're just starting out, it's trying to get in the rooms or the conversations with those that are bigger than you so that you can learn and so that you can also be seen on the same level. When you joined, not everyone welcomed you with open arms. There was a story about this gentleman, Mr. Envelope, you called him. Yes. His politics. Maybe you could share with us some stories on how you navigated it initially before you had the power to start really changing the culture. I just kind of had to deal with it um, and and be respectful. Uh, you know, not everyone's going to like me. I'm not going to like everybody. Um, but, you know, that person was in that role for a reason when they were there. Um, and that was, you know, the the choice of the leadership at the time. Um, so that was something that I needed to needed to respect. I did not come into the leader into the organization in a leadership position. So that's the organization that was there. When you go into a regular business, if you don't like someone, you're not gonna say, okay, I'm gonna fire that person. You don't have the right to do that. So you have to acclimate. What are some of the tips could you share with people in similar situations that have to deal with some people within an organization that do not mean well and actually want to see them fail? I think the main thing is what I focused on in terms of kind of just having a level of respect, um, trying to learn from them as much as possible, even though there's a misalignment. Um, and, you know, there's like that saying, you have to meet pe people where we, where they, where they are. So trying to be cognizant of that, um, you know, this person is not going to like me. Okay. Um, so I need to meet them where where they are. What, how do how do they like to operate? What is important to them? Um, and you know, sometimes try to to maneuver and manipulate the conversations and the behaviors in that way. 
what are some of the special pitfalls of the family business, in your opinion, in your experience? Well, it's just a completely different dynamic. You know, in most jobs, you're not working for your mother or your father or your sibling. Um, so that's that's the biggest that's the biggest adjustment. There are many, many, many others, but that's that's the biggest. How do gender power dynamics play out when a daughter inherits a father's family business? In my case, it was not an issue. It's 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 not even it's not even a thought. It's not something that it's 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 nothing. Um, if anything, when when I took over, um, it was my age. Um, my age was, you know, the right age, but I, people say that I look younger than I am. So even when I came into the business, not in a leadership position, I looked younger. Um, so I don't think that it had, I, I don't think I was never met with anything, you know, gender related inside the company. I was never really met with anything age related either. I think it just, you know, like maybe outside of the company, people would be like, oh, you're, you're, you're doing that. You're so young. <laughs> what about outside the company in terms of uh, relationships with clients and so on, important clients? Did you notice any challenges because of your gender? No, I only one time had an idiot make a stupid comment. That's it. And I've been doing this now for, you know, a long, long time. <laughs> Yeah, 20 over a little over 20 years. Um, so no, I've never had that experience. Just just one. That is very good. I'm very glad to hear. I'm always so glad to hear when when it's not an issue. For me, I always felt it in my career, even as a business owner now running an organization, I can still sense a certain level of discrimination, but I'm very glad to hear stories when it's not an issue <laughs> at all. So the TV show Succession, people probably talk to you all the time about it because you are fourth generation. There was a lot of attention on the importance of passing the business to the next generation and the succession planning and so on. And you believe a clear framework for succession is essential to success, but that it is often overlooked or handled not in the right way. What are some of the key things people should keep in mind when they do succession planning for a family business? I, the first thing is, like you said, it just needs to be it needs to be top of mind. If you want this business to um, succeed in both definitions of the word, <laughs> um, there needs to be plans. Um, they need to be legal documents. They need to be very specific frameworks, very specific governance. Um, it is very challenging and very difficult to do that, um, but it is essential. And then ultimately that really helps to guide everything and can sometimes, you can never take the emotion out of anything, but it can serve to ameliorate it to a degree because it's been established. And in your book, you mentioned that you spent a year putting together proper documentation and thinking and planning around that. Do you feel that that is something that you still have to continue tweaking or do you feel it is good enough now for a while? Um, every once in a while, I, I do look at it and think like, okay, should we be changing it? And in conversations with lawyers, you know, every once in a while we'll bring it up. So it is something that, that 
is not on the front burner, but certainly isn't on the back one. Makes sense. Do you feel that there are specific advantages that family businesses have, especially in a bad economy? So the two things that I've found, there are many, but two advantages that I found, and you mentioned the economy, is certainly the ability to take a long-term look. You know, not being a public company, they, you don't, you know, the, the reporting to the street every quarter is not something that is necessary. You should run your business like a public company, that's for sure. Um, but you have the, the liberty to really take a much longer and extended view. Um, that also allows you to take more calculated risks. Um, the other advantage is in terms of um, recruiting and org structure. So our leadership team is made up of people from very, very large organizations, huge, huge public companies. Um, and the reason why they were attracted to Premier is that while they were very important in those corporations, they did not have the opportunity to move the entire business forward. And when they come to Premier, they can do that. Makes total sense. So building on what you just mentioned, what do you think non-family businesses should learn from family businesses? Maybe, you know, the, maybe the, not just the willingness to change, but the speed of the process and the ability to do so. I think a lot of times things get stymied um, when there, when there's, um, you know, a lot of, when there's too many layers of process. Totally agree. And also other things that you mentioned in terms of long-term view, this is so important. In your book, you were very open about your insecurities taking on family business because you being a member of the family and you felt you had to prove you were worthy and even deal with colleagues setting you up to fail, like Mr. Envelope you mentioned. What advice do you have for a family member considering a leadership role in their family business? I think that there does need to be um, a much higher level of, of work and contribution because you will be scrutinized more than any other employee. Um, so you need to be able to withstand that scrutiny um, and you also need to be able to prove to yourself that you deserve to be there and then others will, will see that. And they can only see that demonstrably. So you need to do it and show it. You manage to also have a family, you have children and you are a CEO of a large organization and you don't have a belief that there is a work-life balance. So how did you manage being successful at both and keeping your health <laughs> Right. Mental and physical. Well, first is I have a, a wonderful, wonderful husband. Um, so that's the that's the bedrock. Um, the second is, you know, I don't delude myself in thinking that I can do everything. You know, we had we had nannies, you know, we had people that helped. I could not do everything. Um, and, you know, I I think I am a very good mother. You would have to ask my children. I think that they would say the same thing. But did I, you know, do everything right? Probably not. Um, but it's the same thing with business. Oh, my daughter's over there. She's giving me a thumbs up. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
it's it's impossible to get everything right all of the time. So you just have to um, you just have to accept that. That takes that actually takes a while to do to accept the fact that you will not be able to do everything and have everything all at once. I think once there's that acceptance, it makes it easier. And also for me, I put together rules. So there were certain things that I just, you know, that I adhered to. So if I had to travel out of town, I wouldn't stay for more than four nights. You know, I would ha have to be home. Or, um, you know, when, when I got, if, if I was in the car with the kids, I wouldn't be on the phone. So I would kind of create these parameters for myself to ensure that I was able to do both things. That is very, very smart. It is also called program decisions and also frees up your mind because you don't need to decide every time. You know that this is how it's done. And right. You know, you made a decision once and it makes sense for your life. Any other ideas you have on how to handle both given that we all have only 24 hours in the day and the work becoming more and more demanding on our time. And then, of course, we have responsibilities to our loved ones as well and other things on top of it, extended family, community, and so on. Any tips you could give on time management, how to keep it all together because you managed to do both successfully? As Basic as it seems, the first thing is I make lists. Um, I make lists <laughs> and I revise the lists and I cross the lists and I reprioritize the lists. The other thing that I do with my family um, at least once a day, if not twice, and I talk about it in the book, is what we call talk day. So we'll get together at night and talk day. What is the schedule? What is everybody going to look like the next day? So is someone going to play practice? Who's taking them? Are we having dinner at home? Who's making it? Um, are, are, are we gonna have dinner um, you know, at grandpa's house? How are we all getting there? Um, does my son have a test? Who's making sure that he studies? <laughs> um, so every day we talk day at night for the next day. And then the next morning we kind of like recap the talk day. Was it inspired by cake day? Uh, no, I don't, I don't know how we came up with it. I think it was just like, okay, let's talk about the day. And then we shortened it because, you know, everyone's in a rush all the time. So it just became talk day. Makes sense. And do you still have cake day within the organization? Maybe yes. say what it is. At our corporate headquarters every month, um, we will get together uh, and celebrate the peoples whose birthdays are in that month. And so it's an opportunity for the people that work again at corporate to be together, to again, continue to build on that culture, um, to celebrate each other. And, you know, just also another time for leadership to kind of talk about things that, that might be going on. So you kept the tradition. Yes. It's thriving. I like it. It's very good tradition. When you hire new people to join your organization and they're coming from large organizations, it's, they're not coming from family business, what advice do you give them? Do you prepare them in some way that it is different, it's run differently? Um, 
I mostly will talk to them about what I believe is unique to Premier's culture, um, which is there's almost no politics. Um, and I and I do not expect or want to be treated with deference. Um, and I think that's that's often kind of a different, a shift in mindset um, when coming from very large organizations. So I established that from the outset. And then once you became the head of the company, what were some of the first important changes you implemented? Um, one of one of the biggest things that I did was really kind of holistically looking at the direction of the organization where I wanted it to go. And it was based on, um, on kind of a data-driven strategy. So I started kind of putting together the building blocks for what that looked like and what that would allow us to, to become. How people reacted to it? There was probably some resistance because it's not how things were done for a long time. How did you deal with that? There was, I, I am a very um, uh, effusive and um, excited person. So some, my energy, you know, is, is kind of transferred a lot of the time. So um, if I am excited about something, I encourage that excitement. Um, and I think that's, that's a big part of it. And also communicating the reason for these things, not just to say, hey, isn't this great, great that we're doing this, but, you know, to, to clearly kind of lay things out. And some people aren't going to like it and some people aren't going to hang and that's okay. You know, change isn't for everybody. <laughs> Julian, how do you manage training and development to make sure that your team becomes stronger and stronger and don't become complacent and start losing skills and deteriorating? For me, there is a level of expectation and urgency in the work that they do. Um, I would not say that I personally develop them. That is not one of my strengths as a leader um, in terms of personal development. I, in fact, hire people that can understand my vision and execute on it and even hopefully uh, expand on it, um, but that are able to do that on their own. Um, so for me, it's about setting the level of expectation and again, the sense of urgency and purpose around something. So you're not focusing really too much on development. They kind of manage their own professional development. It's, it's more focused on execution of objectives. Of driving, of driving the organization, yes. Julie, and the, you mentioned in the book that when you started coming to the office in the weekends, no one was really there. You were the only one. So there wasn't this sense of urgency, this drive. How things changed over time? How did you change the culture a little bit? And what was helpful in changing the culture? Setting the level of expectation, it was kind of, you know, resulted in a change in a change in culture. Um, so it wasn't that any rules were set differently. It wasn't that any mandates were given down. Um, it was just a, a communication of strategy, of vision, of goals, and the expectation that, you know, these things be, be done and be met. And in order to do that, things needed to be elevated. And, you know, people typically rise to the occasion. Julian, how did you communicate those expectations? Was it part of the metrics? that you used? 
it was in metrics. It was in 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 just regular conversation. It was just something that was reinforced in many different areas. And what was the process like? Was it how long did it take for you to start shifting things? And you you felt okay. Now it is different. I think it was it happens really incrementally. It's not that like one day. Oh my God! Now you know today. <laughs> um, I, I think these things have a build. I would say, and I think that they're you know ever ever improving. You should never be at a stagnation point in terms of the 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 level of work and and expectation. Um, so I would say probably now is the you know the the pinnacle of where we had been, and it just keeps it just keeps growing. Julie, and what were some unexpected challenges that presented themselves once you became the top of the organization? Well, I mean, the biggest one that we all faced was COVID, obviously. Yes. But anything else that was kind of uh, not because of something happened that no one expected, but more kind of repeatable challenges that other people will face as well. So maybe you didn't realize that it will be that way. But then once you became the CEO, then you saw that it is actually that way and it was challenging and you did not expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is one one of my experiences in that area, excuse me, relates to product development because before I was in leadership position, um, we did product development in in one way, um, and then kind of as I grew within the organization, I recognized that that one way is not sustainable. Um, so then, you know, making that change, that adaptation. The last question from my side is, and it's not connected to the book, but it's favorite question to ask for me in interviews like this. In the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look either at life or at business? Again, back to COVID, I think that that just really changed the perspective and um, the realization of the level of resilience that 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 we can have and that we were able to um, inculcate within the organization. Uh, I think another realization not having to do with business at all is um, I would uh, I will do a lot for my children. <laughs> um, you know, very you know supportive of my children to a very high uh, level in a positive way. <laughs> um, and uh, and is there anything else? Um, another thing is that I need to kind of like maybe do less, but I haven't done anything about that yet. <laughs> this is a great place to end this session. Before we do that, Julie, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? Maybe something you wanted me to ask you and I haven't asked you. No, I really, really appreciate the interview. I think you asked a lot of um, very strong questions and hopefully it will resonate resonate with the audience. I, you know, I try to lead through again, another buzzword, but it's true. Like try to lead through um, authenticity. Uh, so hopefully that's, that's what uh, people are realizing could hopefully work for them also. Julian, where can listeners find you where they can get your book and so on? Sure. So my book is available in two places. One is on Amazon um, and the other is on my website, which is juliecharlestein.com. Thank you so much, Julie, again.
Thank you everyone again for tuning in. Our guest today again has been Julie Charleston. Check out Julie's book. It is called How to Lead Your Family Business, Excelling Through Unexpected Crises, Choices, and Challenges. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It's a free download we prepared for you. You can get it on firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care and look forward to connect with you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.